Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. This article is going to be hard for the righteous cause mythologists to square. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Get that free class when you enroll. And don't forget to purchase as many classes as you can, but also... If you're listening in July of 2023, you've got that coupon code WASHINGTON. Get reading George Washington for $70 off. This is the only month you can do it. It's the lowest price you'll ever see. So just click on reading George Washington. Use the coupon code WASHINGTON. Get $70 off. Or if you're on my email list, you've gotten the coupons many, many times. So use that coupon. Get the deal because it'll never be this inexpensive again. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can click on the heart button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. That's the super thanks button. Go to Spotify for podcasts. You can throw a few pennies my way that way. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Comment on YouTube for the algorithm. All those things help promote the show painlessly, at least sharing around on social media and commenting. That's painless. And it does help get more eyes and ears on the program. All right. Well, this is kind of a listener-generated episode. Um, Somebody sent this to me and said, you know, I just wanted to show it to you. But in this week of education, I thought it would be a valuable educational tool. And I let off the show by saying this is really going to be hard for the righteous cause mythologists to square. Now, what they usually do with these kind of things is say, okay, well, these people are all Democrats. Or, uh, yeah, we know this is the case, but... We know also that more people started believing that the war was going to end slavery or whatever it was near the end of the war. But what this shows you is that that wasn't necessarily true. And, you know, history is complex. There's going to be all kinds of, you know, what about what about this or what about that? There's always exceptions to everything. So but that complexity is something I mentioned on Monday's episode and how it's important we get things right. And the complexity usually does blow apart the simplistic narratives that often come into play, particularly when you're talking about an occasion like the war. Uh, And then you have this very simplistic narrative. Some some people had commented with a tweet that was sent out, a righteous cause tweet, you know, the war was about America against the South. I mean, all this stuff is just blown out of the water with the complexity that really does exist with the war. Now, the other thing this, this article is going to do is actually buttress the 1619 Project in some ways. You see, this is a leftist that's kind of writing this, that's writing this story. Uh, you can tell by the way that he writes. The 1619 Project essentially insists that we had the proposition nation, but nobody really ever lived up to it until you had a certain amount of good guys. 
There were these good guys in American history that lived up to the proposition nation. They did what they had to do. And it's a very small percentage of Americans. But for most of American history, everything was bad. We had structural racism. We had, uh, you know, we had people that didn't believe that uh, in racial equality. We, we had all this stuff going on. And then they use evidence like this article I'm going to talk about to show it. Right? And, of course, the primary document the article talks about. And there's, they're actually not wrong about that. The 1619 Project is fundamentally correct in that most Americans didn't believe in the proposition nation. It's correct. That's, that's, that's indisputable if you look at the record. Now, people talked about it at times, even in the founding generation. You, you know, George Washington, making, I get into this in, in reading George Washington, but he made statements about human rights, for example. And you had, of course, in Massachusetts, uh, where you had uh, the uh, state Supreme Court of Massachusetts invalidate slavery based on the Constitution of Massachusetts, even though John Adams' first draft of the Constitution was a pro-slavery document, even though that Connecticut and Massachusetts had Jim Crow laws, and they actually called them that in the 1830s, even though that when abolitionists started making a lot more noise in New England in the 1830s, they were run out of town, there was violence, all kinds of things. We know there's, that there's a very small group of people in America that pushed what would now be considered the righteous cause myth. We know it was a tiny percentage. It was a small percentage of a percentage, right? A small percentage of New England, which is only a percentage of the population. This is a tiny percentage of Americans. We know this. But what we've done is elevated these people and said, these are the real Americans. Well, that would be news to everybody else living in America at the time. So we have these, these, you get this complexity for a reason. It's not to say there's good guys and bad guys in history. That's the, that's the negative thing the 1619 Project tries to do. It tries to create a narrative of good guys and bad guys. That's the problem with it. And it creates a history for or a usable past. It has a political agenda, and that political agenda is namely power, right? Because if you can force people to think, a certain way, you can force your way into power positions. And that's essentially what's happening with the Florida curriculum, which I'll talk about tomorrow on tomorrow's show. But I wanted to get into this piece because it really does set up, even discussion of Florida and what's happening there, it really sets these kind of things up. You know, we started the week talking about the founding generation and how we have to be careful with how we use very simplistic descriptions of the founding generation because it actually leads to various pitfalls and a whataboutism particularly from the left, we have to be careful with that because they aren't incorrect about some of the things they say. The point is, as I talked about last week, you don't have to buy into their narrative to say that, yeah, these people were, they, they didn't hold 21st century positions on a lot of things, we, you know, race and other things, but so what? I mean, that's the answer, so what? It doesn't, it doesn't invalidate what they had to say about government, about society. It doesn't invalidate any of that. They just didn't hold the same views we hold on those issues. You don't have to accept them whole cloth. You don't have to say, well, because they said this about this, well, then they can't be right about that. That's a, that's a fallacy of logic, you see. And it's a dangerous fallacy of logic. But you also don't need to buy into these simplistic narratives either on the left or the right. Now, again, this piece being written by leftists, the whole point is to show that, well, there is some kind of structural things going on here. Not all these people were good guys and uh, you know, we need to be careful about even promoting union veterans. You see, that's the whole point. There isn't really any good history until the 1970s, according to the 1619 Project. Really. 
it is a Marxist driven narrative. Not, not, and you know, Paul Gottfried really gets upset when you talk about this stuff. But the point is, if you think about what the, or I should say more in line with Leninism, you think about what the Leninists did in the Soviet Union. This was the whole point of 1984. What the Leninists did in the Soviet Union was rewrite history beginning at a certain point to fit a narrative. It's what, it's what currently happens in North Korea, for example. It's what happens in China. It's what happened in the Soviet Union. And essentially what these, and it's what happened in the French Revolution too, by the way. You can't, you can't get away from that. The French Revolution was cataclysmic for Western civilization. But you, what happens with this kind of narrative is, well, all that stuff is bad. Now, we can, we can mention it, but we're going to melt it down. I mean, this is what is happening now. We're, we're going to tear it down. We're, it's not even putting it in museums now. It's melting it down, as we've seen in Virginia now. You have to eradicate it. And the start is symbols, whether it's a monument, whether it's a flag. And then you get the narrative. And then you get to the Khmer Rouge eventually. These people have to be eliminated. I mean, this is what does start happening. They have to be eliminated. I did see a poll the other day that you know there was a certain number of millennials that want a, a, a type of speech they don't agree with that you go to jail for it. I mean, this is dangerous stuff. We're, we're getting into the realm of very dangerous French Revolutionary style stuff, very Leninist style activity in the United States. And it's always been there. There's always a undercurrent for it, but the Anglo-American political and legal tradition has always silenced that kind of stuff. It's always knocked it down. But when enough people don't believe in it, and they start believing more in a French Revolutionary-style America or a Leninist-style America, well, then you're in trouble. Civil liberties are in trouble. And we're seeing it, right? So I want to get in this letter, but you got to think about the political undercurrents that's going on here and how this does affect... Because everything now hits history wars. You know, that's what I mentioned yesterday. The college towns, everything is history wars. And it's the understanding of the past that's at stake. These people vote the way they do because of the way they understand the past. It's not about the, the air and the, the heat and all these kind of things. Because most of them are just so stupid they wouldn't even know about that anyways. They just, oh, it's just hot today. It's never been this hot before. I, every, I mean, I remember walking around with, uh, you know, f colleagues and, you know, and they would say things, oh, gosh, it's hot in June. Never been this hot in June. Really? You, you're sure about that? <laughs> you know that for a fact? Uh, because, you know, people are, are relative, right? That, so they, they, they think about what's now. Oh, I don't remember it being like this. Usually people don't remember things. But it probably was. It probably was at some point. You just don't remember it, right? So that's important. The remembered past. This gets to the remembered past. Well, I don't remember that. I don't remember that at all. I don't remember it this way. Or the way they do remember it has got issues with it. And the way we remember the war, if you're a unionist, right? We remember the war that Lincoln freed the slaves and it ended slavery. But how did people at the time actually think about it? What did they say about it? That remembered past is dangerous at times. And it's not just the lost cause mythology. Oh yeah, you're right, McClanahan. All these Southerners go out there, they remember the past incorrectly. They're trying to change the present by, re by remembering the past differently than it really was. Again, you can show that's not the case, if you just look at what Jefferson Davis said before the war, what he said during the war, and what he said after the war, you know what? It's, it's very consistent. Or what Northern Democrats said during the war. If you go out and you take the Copperheads class at McClanahan Academy, I get into some of that, where I say, look, I mean, look at what these people are saying during the war. This is the lost cause, but they're saying it in 1861. They're not making anything up here. This is what they said the war was about. 
But no, no, no. That's not what it's about because that's not how we remember it. That's not how we choose to remember it. So you get Kevin Cruz and the Myth America and all that kind of stuff. The real myth is them. The real myth is the leftist. That's the real myth about American history. So let me get into this little piece. It's not long. It was actually published in a uh, Ohio newspaper, I believe. It's by Mark Sebastian Jordan. It was published on July 22nd. And the title is Letter Exposes Post-Civil War Racism. So again, you have this, just by that title, there's this perception that the North was the happy land of good racial egalitarians and good guys, right? The good guys wore the blue. And then you've got the South, and we've talked about this several times on this show. You've got the South that was the bad guys, and they wore the gray, and they were just all the racists, and they didn't... And, of course, you know, if, if you follow that line of thinking, then, of course, uh, the West, as I, I did a podcast not long ago, the West and how all that was carried out West, but all that was there, right? All this, you know, all this belief in racial inequality and all this stuff, it was all there. It, it didn't have to, the South didn't have to do any of this stuff. The, the stuff was already there. So the piece says, history is controversial. Official histories are often heavily influenced by whomever has power and money. That's not incorrect. That's a correct statement. Whoever won, right? Whoever won often gets to write the official history. And so this is what Southerners are saying. Well, look, we lost, but we want to make sure that our side is still told. But that's not correct because that's not what we think about it, you see? One of the things I like about writing a small local history column is that I'm not burdened with that kind of editorial interference. But there is a general social tendency to want to sweep the ugly stories under the rug and pretend that everything is and always has been Picture perfect. That's, again, that's not necessarily untrue. I do think there is an agenda, and I'm going to talk about this tomorrow with the Florida curriculum. There is an agenda to bring out some of the bad stuff. There's a political agenda behind it. There's a power play behind it. Because why do you want to... Re I mean, think about this. Why do you really want to remember some of these horrible things that have happened in history? What is the point behind it? Well, so we don't repeat those kind of things is usually the response. Okay. That's, that's a, not a bad answer. But what really is at stake here is to make people feel like their people or their ancestors or whatever it was either were good or bad. That's the whole point. And to make people feel like they're, they need to be in a position to remember these things over and over again. Not so that we don't do it again, but so that the people who suffered under these things can be elevated to a different position of power. That's generally what this comes down to. It doesn't matter what you're talking about here. Now, this only works for certain groups and not for other groups. And we know how this, there's, there's a political dynamic to all of this. Because if we were going to talk about bad things, we could talk about bad things to all every group of people. We could talk about bad things to the Celts, for example. There's this little video circulating around of a guy. He's not smoking a cigarette, and he's he's, uh, he's kind of a big guy. And he's saying, yeah, you know, the Celts and the Romans were bad to the Celts. And remember this, remember that? He gets into some, yeah, you, you could talk about that. I mean, there's <laughs> if you do that. How about the Irish and the English? I mean, you could, you could go through all kinds of things. Different groups in different times and what they've been subjected to by another power, another group of people. You could go through this endlessly. There's always a political motivation behind it. 
Some groups it's okay, some groups it's not okay, and that's the real issue with it all. He says, thus this week's column gives me a bit of a dull headache, because I know there are plenty of people around who would rather not be reminded of unpleasant past episodes. But I firmly believe that if we do not confront our past mistakes, how can we ever fix them and move forward in the better future? So, I mean, this is the argument. Well, we got to bring up these bad things because if we don't, well, then we can't fix it. History is there to fix. We got to fix the present because of the past. That's the whole point of the 1619 Project. When you really think about it, that's what they're trying to do. Well, here's how bad America was. We had this belief that everything was good. And certain people believe that. Read the Nicole Hannah-Jones essay that kicked off the 1619 Project. It is saturated with Proposition Nation mythology. Her father, flying the U.S. flag, he believed in the Proposition Nation myth, but she wondered why he did that, because they never lived up to this. we got to fix this. It's a, it's a situation that has to be rectified, fixed, through reparations or through whatever... A power, whatever it is, it has to be fixed. There isn't just a, an, a, an agenda to understand, right? Why did people think this way at the time? Why did they not think this way? Why did they? Why did they have these beliefs or not these beliefs? No, there's a usable part to this. That's what he's saying. There's a usable past. We have to fix stuff based on this. What does this actually have to do with fixing anything? When you get down to it, how do you fix it? And are we responsible for something that somebody did 150 years ago? Is anyone living now responsible for that? At all. Why would I be responsible for what somebody said in 1868? I'm not. Why would you be responsible for it? You're not. And not only that, why would you benefit from a fix? And let's just, just to say, you know, yeah, we tried to understand this. We don't really understand what these people are saying. This is why they thought this way. We don't think that way now. And so we move on from that. And that's all you do. But that's not the agenda. And, see, and he says, so I'm sharing an open letter that a group of Knox County and one Holmes County veterans wrote to former Union General and later Ohio Governor Jacob Cox, which was published on July 29, 1865, as an editorial in the Daily Ohio Statesman, a Columbus newspaper. He says, I tend not to flinch in unsavory history, but there are lines of decency, so I'm not going to type out a certain racial slur, yes, the one that begins with the letter N, that these soldiers use freely in their letter. The newspaper published the word without hesitation. Now, let me stop there. That gives you a nice example. And this would actually build into the 1619 Project. See? See, these people really, this is, this is structural racism. This is what people thought. It didn't matter if they were the North or the South. It's what people thought. It's what we're trying to rectify now by fixing it, right? The point is, it blows apart the righteous cause myth. It blows apart the good guys in the blue and the bad guys in the gray and that the bad guys in the gray did all these things and it was America against the bad guys, the South. It blows out all these simplistic narratives, which is, again, what I would suggest that we don't need to be doing, particularly conservatives, because it doesn't do us any good. It actually works against us. Let the left do these things and point out their stupidity because that's what really needs to happen. But it also shows you that, uh, you know, we seek to try to understand this. Why do these people think this way? Well, Ohio, if we try to understand this, 
Ohio in the 1860s had laws prohibiting blacks from living there. Well, this is the reason why they all thought this. Because they weren't really in a society, a biracial society at that point in Ohio at all. There's nothing there. So why do these people think this way? Is it because they didn't have any blacks around in 1865? Was it because they they had been around blacks in 1860? What what was the point? I mean, why did they but why did they have these racial attitudes? Just because this is what people thought in 1865? How do, how do people think about things? That's what a historian has to do, try to understand what's happening. And I think one of the things with Ohio, and you have to understand, is there, there weren't really any blacks living in the state. There were some. Very small number, and again, it was illegal for a time for them to live there. In the wake of the Civil War, there was much discussion about the future of former slaves. Many of the progressive people who had supported the abolition of slavery also favored giving at slaves full citizenship, including the right for black males to vote. Female suffrage was still decades away. Many of the, you know, look at, look at, look at how he says this. There's much discussion. Many of the progressive people these are progressives. Now again, hey, they're progressives in 1865. I'm a progressive. I'm a good guy, right? I'm one of the good guys. You'd also talk about progressives <laughs> being ardent racist too. Uh, and there's a book, uh, Behind the Mask of Chivalry, that uh, I've mentioned this before on this podcast. A colleague of mine was in a reading seminar in graduate school. And that book essentially makes the claim that the Klan was progressive. And the progressives in that reading seminar were going through fits because they couldn't they couldn't wrap their head around, no, 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 this can't be true. This can't be true. Progressives can't be that. I mean, heck, the Leninists said they were progressives. Now, they're just going to slaughter anybody who doesn't agree with them. The French revolutionaries were progressives. <laughs> See, progressives aren't necessarily always the good guys, right? But that's what they want to make them feel. Look, I was a good guy. I'm a progressive. They're progressives, just like me. It can also come as no great surprise that there were many opponents of black suffrage in central Ohio. For the region was notorious for its southern sympathies during the war. Well, that had nothing really to do... <laughs> With southern sympathies. I mean, we got to think about this Ohio. There were lots of people here in Ohio that were a bunch of southerners, you see. How about the fact that Ohio didn't let black, didn't let black people live there? I mean, this is Leon Litvak and uh, North of Slavery. Go out and read that book. I mean, you're going to get a really different view of Ohio. Go read Eric Foner, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men. It wasn't about southern sympathy. It was just... The reason these people supported the South is because they didn't like the they didn't like these progressives, right? It wasn't because they were Southern sympathizers. It was just they didn't like the Republicans and who they were, including the farcical brief rebellion known as Fort Fizzle, which broke out in Holmes County in 1863, and which I wrote about in an earlier uh, History Knox column, which alas I was unable to access. That's weird. You write for the newspaper and you can't access your old column. You don't You don't want to throw some quotes in there or something from your old column. That's kind of strange. But anyways, uh, yeah, there were people that sympathized with the South. In reality, what they were doing is opposing Lincoln because they looked at Lincoln as a tyrant. These are the, these are the copperheads, right? These are the people that oppose the Lincoln administration, Northern Democrats. 
With so much of his ancestral roots dating back to Virginia, Central Ohio was never all that firmly on the Union side of the war. All because of, see, it's all about Virginia. It's all about Virginia. It's not about anything else. I mean, it couldn't be that the fact that um, you had uh, a lot of these things all throughout the United States. No, no, no. It just goes back to Virginia. That's all it was. You know, Ohio was at one time Virginia. It was Augusta County, Virginia. That's what it, it was all called. I mean, that's the whole Northwestern Territories. You could say with their with their roots going back to Virginia, anywhere in the Midwest, it could be uh, it could be Michigan. That went back to Virginia. Any of that, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, it all goes back to Virginia because it was all Virginia. I mean, that's just a kind of a silly statement. Central Ohio was never all that firmly on the Union side of the war. Well, I mean, I guess it depended on who you were in central Ohio. And that's why Knox County was chosen as the locale for an important speech by Clement Vallandigham when he was running for president against Abraham Lincoln in 1864, and which was also covered in the earlier, no longer accessible column at Knox, as Knox Pages goes through his transition to a new website with a new computer system. That's really bad writing, by the way. He, so I'm sure there's something, some way you could have thrown that in there, but... Regardless, even those who supported the Union during the war had limits about how far they would support Lincoln's agenda, even after the president's tragic, tragic assassination in April of 1865. The debate about the black vote continued, drawing forth a very unpleasant letter just a few months later. A very unpleasant letter. Again, why would people write this in 1865? This is what people believed. When you throw words like unpleasant and this, and I mean, you throw these kind of things, these modern moral values on historical subjects, it does create a problem in the interpretation of the past, or at least I should say the writing of the past. And it's something that people have, have written about uh, and how you should do this or not do this, but what this piece is doing, essentially, is making a political stand without subtly, without really actually doing it, without saying it. The letter was dated July 15, 1865, and postmarked uh, Greersville, Ohio. The town's name was later shortened to Greer, and it can still be found straddling Ohio 514 on the Mohican River in Jefferson Township of Knox County. The letter starts aggressively and only gets worse. Starts aggressively. Dear Sir, we do not write to you as party men, but as citizen soldiers who have returned from the field to resume the duties of civil life. Well, that's pretty aggressive. <laughs> In what world is that aggressive? The letter starts aggressively. Dear sir, that's pretty aggressive. We do not write to you as party men, but as citizen soldiers who have returned from the field to resume the duties of civil life. What he would say is that uh, these aren't party men. These aren't Republicans or Democrats, whatever. These are citizen soldiers. See, there's the veiled threat. He's going to mention this later. There's the veiled threat. They're soldiers. And they're ready to take up arms again if you do something bad here. Or it could have just been that they were just citizens who served as soldiers and they want to get back to being just citizens. We entered into the war to put down the rebellion and thereby preserve the Union. 
We care nothing for the blacks, right? He leaves the word out. Nor do we now. Or care nothing for the Negroes, right? You could say it that way. Nor do we now. If slavery went under, we did not care. And if not, it was all the same to us, provided we saved the Union. We did not want to see the Union broken up, nor do we now want to be placed on a level with Negroes as a reward for our services. As you are a soldier general, we have a right to look to you to defend our right. And if you will stand by the boys, then we will stand by you. But if you go placing us upon an equality with Negroes, then we'll go against you. Now, uh, so he's saying, as you're a soldier, just like we are, you're a soldier, we'll stand by you. But if you don't, then we can't stand by you, right? We're citizen soldiers, just like you're a citizen soldier. And so we're with you or we're against you. But, you know, he didn't say how they're going to be against them. And in fact, this is what the person writing this says. It's an interesting kind of stance to make. I have no idea whether or not the writers of the letter were aware of the implied threat of a group of former soldiers publicly stating will go against you. (laughs) I have no idea. But yet, I'm going to draw a conclusion that way anyways. It's not aggressive. They're just saying, hey, here's we are. We're citizen soldiers just like you, and we'll go against you. Well, that would usually mean in an election. But I suspect they were completely aware of the veiled threat, considering that they were all farmers with guns, and since they've been soldiers, they obviously know how to use them. <laughs> it's a veiled threat. I'm sure they were aware. They were saying, this is going to be violent if you, if you don't do this. How do we know that? We don't know that. Did any of these people engage in any violence any other time, except for going and shooting Johnny Reb, right? I mean, did they, did they do this? Or are they just saying, hey, we're citizen soldiers just like you, and we want to ensure that uh, as soldiers, you do the soldierly thing. We, we support you in that. you gotta, you got to be against these kind of political machinations going on in Ohio. The sentence is worded so that the threat remains veiled and therefore legally unactionable. Right, it's veiled. Veiled threat. So it's legally... So these people really... I mean, they were so smart they knew what they were doing. It makes me think of the current controversy with the Jason Aldean song where the writer professes not to be making violent threats though the ingredients are all presented leaving the observer to connect the dots. No, that's just for weird... Uh, lefty progressives that have, I mean, these weird fantasies about all this kind of stuff. It's typically what happens with us. The letter goes on to say that the undersigned soldiers were against having Negro soldiers, for we were able to whip the rebels ourselves, which is demonstrably untrue. It is? This demonstrably untrue? So these guys didn't, they weren't able to do that themselves? That's a fascinating statement. That was only because this is this is where you get into narratives and myths. It's only because of black soldiers that the United States won the war. Only because of that. Uh, that is one of the greatest myths of the war. But these guys are saying this is where it was going. We, we were able to do this. I mean, uh, if you look at the Western theater, look at the Western theater. You look at, and I'll just say this, you look at the Vicksburg campaign or on down the Mississippi, Shiloh, any of these, were there large numbers of black soldiers involved there? Or was it white soldiers against white soldiers? So were they able to whip the whip the Rebs by themselves? 
Yeah. I mean, they won many, many battles in the West without any kind of black soldiers. It then goes on to tell a blatant further falsehood that although the Negroes wore the uniform, you know, general, that the white soldiers did the fighting. Well, for most of the war, that was true. And even when black soldiers were put to the lines, there were still a lot of white Union soldiers. I mean, this is... So they're minimizing, yes, they're minimizing the fact that uh, black soldiers did participate in the combat of the war, but... um, they're not necessarily telling a lie when they say we're able to whip the rebels ourselves. I don't know. I mean, they had a lot of immigrants too. Whatever the writers wanted to claim, it is well documented that there were numerous instances of brave and impressive battlefield conduct by African-American soldiers. Yeah, but that's that's true, right? That, that did happen. But to claim, they said that we're able to whip the rebels ourselves is not disputing what they're saying in that, what the writer is saying in that line. So, I mean, again, what's the greater myth here? It's kind of silly in a way when you think about it. That's about as much as practical offense the writers take of their badly racist, I'm sorry, baldly racist position. Soon they reveal their hatred plainly. Never will we consent to march up to the polls alongside of Negroes. The writers then claim that General William Tecumseh Sherman was always opposed to Negro troops, as he now is opposed to Negro voters. While Sherman did oppose the use of black troops during the war for strategic reasons, he, and he expressed initial opposition to extending voting rights to blacks, he later reconsidered his position after seeing the abuses of post-war reconstruction in the South and declared that his support for full civil rights for blacks, including the right to vote. Now, again, let's take this the historic part of this. So this letter is written in 1865. So the writer... The writer of of this article is saying, well, wait a second here. These people make false assertions about William Tecumseh Sherman. In 1865, that's what he had said, right? So if if Sherman later on takes a different position, it was later on. It wasn't in July of 1865. (laughs) Well, then these people aren't incorrect in what they're saying is. There's nothing incorrect about that. So, but what the writer is doing here is, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, Sherman did, did say that, but later on, he, he, he changed his position and he came around to this. But when the letter was written, Sherman didn't have any different position than anyone knew of. So the people are correct. Did this letter influence General Cox's public views? We can't know for sure, but he did ultimately side with his former soldiers in opposing the blacks' right to vote. He was elected governor of Ohio before he was even mustered out of the army, serving from 66 to 68. He later served as Secretary of Interior under President U.S. Grant until Grant forced him out. Coxon served in Congress from 77 through 79 and later served as a president of the University of Cincinnati. Unlike General Sherman, Cox's views on black suffrage are not known to ever have evolved. So he then tells you who all these people were, and I'm not going to go through that. But again, this this um, letter, let me, let me finish with his last couple of paragraphs. He says, The 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution guaranteeing black men the right to vote was passed in Congress in 1869 and ratified by the states in less than one year. 
It is unknown if any of the veterans who wrote this letter changed their views. The world, though, has moved on and continues to challenge people to learn and grow. Examining the past is an important part of that process. How? <laughs> I mean, okay. Uh, you could seek to try to understand who these people were. Why did they, why did they, a real historian would go back and say, why do these people have this position? Why do they support this? Why did, why did they do this? He does try to find out, he, he lists nine people, the nine people who signed it, to try to figure out who they were. Last names, uh, uh, Drinken, Barker, Blaubaugh, uh, Pyre, Hylett, Peeler, Sapp, and Neff are the people that signed the letter. Um, but anyways, this shows you the mental contortions that people go through to try to justify different things and create narratives and using the past in a usable way instead of seeking to understand. It's the real problem with the righteous cause mythologist. This person is a righteous cause mythologist who like, well, but I know there are some things here, but this really wasn't the overall view of the war. I mean, look, and Sherman did change his mind. And there's, but in 1865, he hadn't. And generally in 1865, this is what people thought. And generally the consensus of Ohio in 1865 was exactly what this letter stated. There's no veiled threat. There's none of that going on. This is just fantasy for these people, but they do it there's no evidence. Well, I don't have any evidence of this. I don't have any evidence of that. I don't have any... So I'm going to say these things anyways. That's really being a bad historian. So Mark Jordan is being a pretty bad historian in this particular case. All right. This is a nice example of, again, education and what bad education can do to people. And we'll wrap that up tomorrow for this week with a discussion of the new Florida curriculum. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.